and welcome to Zellertau's Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Böhm, Research Fellow at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. And once again, your host on today's podcast adventure. Now in our podcasts, we have so far traveled far and wide covering conservation stories from around the world, from pangolins in Africa and Asia, to the wildlife of the West African savannah, coral reefs, to mountain chickens of the Caribbean. Incidentally, the latter sounds also like a great film title. Now today we're traveling to a jungle which is expanding faster than any other habitat type on Earth and which supports over half of the world's human population. I'm talking, of course, about the urban jungle. Our sprawling cities and towns which are encroaching on nature. Although some nature thrives in our man-made environments, London's foxes, for example, Berlin's wild boars, the peregrine falcons of New York. Other species will require our help to persist in our concrete canyons, paved gardens and manicured parks. So with me today to discuss all things urban is my very own sis, my bro in the know. It's Professor Kate Jones from the University College London and Cedazel. And yes, Kate, this is the most urban I will ever get. And it's great to have you here, Kate. We don't generally associate cities with wildlife, but what's your most surprising species of wildlife that you've seen in urban environments? I'd have to say bats, because... Bats are so secret and cryptic that you just don't know that they're there. And you can be taking out a group of people into a local park at dusk. And if you've got some special equipment, you can turn it on and then suddenly the skies come alive and the, the sound erupts from these detectors. And the people, the group that you're taking with you are completely oblivious to the fact that bats are right above their head feeding. But, you know, when you have these, these secret detectors that can interpret these sounds the whole place comes alive and you can see bats right into the middle of city so I've taken bat walks in on strawberry fields in the middle of New York City which must be one of the most urban places on the planet and there are bats flying overhead and you can sit on the, the grass and just look up it's fantastic wow that sounds awesome I also knew you were going to say bats because you're practically bat woman Um, So I feel like I haven't seen any bats in London for a very long time. Maybe I'm just not very perceptive. Where are they? Um, Apart from trying to avoid me, clearly. So if you find a park with a water body, that would be a really good start. So in London, uh, Hampstead Ponds are fantastic. So that's a really good site. And it's really quite open as well. So if you go and walk there at dusk and sit there with it, even without a bat detector, you can see them flying past. It's absolutely incredible, incredible sight. So Kate, I hear you've helped set up a new monitoring project for bats in the Olympic Park, is that right? This is very exciting, the most cool project I've ever been involved with. So these are smart sensors, like robotic sensors. So these um, microphones are set up in these boxes, which we 3D printed. And then... (laughs) This doesn't get more futuristic. (laughs) And then we had like an Intel chip, like a computer chip, in the sensor. It does get more futuristic. Then we use artificial intelligence machine learning to process all the recordings that are coming in and classify them to bats and bat species. So on the fly, in real time, so every millisecond, it's processed and then it reports back to a website. So if you go on the website, you can actually see what's happening in real time in the Olympic Park yes. in London. Yes. So in we, terms of bats. We only kind of switch them on at night because bats are only come out at dusk. But you can go to naturesmartcities.com and watch the live feed as they come out of their boxes. 
that is that is super awesome. I was gonna ask you how can people get involved, but in these robo tech times, do you actually need people? Well, we do need people, but maybe not for the boring jobs. So the boring jobs is going through all the recordings and classifying them to species, so we can get a robot to do that. And you can do something interesting like plant bat-friendly plants in your garden, join a bat group, go on a bat walk, give a bat talk, do some monitoring, you know, help us understand where bats are in the country. So there's lots of things you can do and get involved with, but perhaps the boring jobs we can robot out. <laughs> Excellent. All right, with us is Catherine Bulldock from the University of Bristol. So she's a NERC Knowledge Exchange Fellow working on a range of projects looking at how urban habitat management can be improved to benefit little pollinators like bees. Yeah, so I was involved in a research project called the Urban Pollinators Project that ran for three years and we looked at pollinators in a range of urban habitats across the UK. Did your study suggest that bumblebees do better in urban habitats? So in the first part of the research we compared pollinators in urban areas to those in farmland and nature reserves and what we found is that overall per unit sampling area there was no significant difference in pollinator abundance or species richness of so the diversity of pollinators between those three landscapes the urban farm and nature reserve but one interesting finding was that the species richness of so the diversity of bees was actually higher in urban areas compared to farmland so yeah. that was quite an so interesting what, result. What was driving that do you think? So we didn't look at drivers specifically in our studies, but there's a range of hypotheses. So one is that urban areas, particularly gardens, might have a large range of different planted flower oh, species yeah, yeah. that bees might like. Um, another kind of possibility is something called the urban heat island effect. Oh, yeah. So it might be that growing conditions are better for some of the plants throughout the year. There might be more flowers because of that. And yeah, just I think kind of the diversity and a mixture of sort of the native weeds but also the non-native plants particularly uh, we found that the numbers of non-native plants was significantly higher in the urban areas so that's probably one of the key drivers. And did you just look at bees or did you look at other pollinators as well? We looked at all pollinators so bees, hoverflies, in fact all flies um, because there's a range of a huge diversity of other flies that visit flowers as well and have been shown to be pollinators, beetles and butterflies and moths so all, all pollinator groups. So where do they like hanging out then? So we had like hot spots. Yeah, we always talk about you know, when teenagers hang <laughs> yeah. out in urban so, areas, yeah, where do pollinators hang out in like urban areas? Like the high streets, you know, what happens? Street corners. <laughs> hanging Smoking. baskets at the Smoking, corner of yeah. the street. Um, so in the second part of the research, we actually mapped all the different land uses in four cities, Bristol, Reading, Leeds and Edinburgh. And we sampled lots of different urban land uses. So in the first part of the study, we just looked at urban as a whole. But here we were drilling down into the different land uses. So we looked at allotments, gardens, nature reserves, parks. We even sampled along pavements. You get weeds in pavements, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, cool. industrial estates, roundabouts, the whole shebang. And one of the interesting things that we found was that some of those land uses have higher numbers of pollinators than others so particularly the areas like allotments and gardens 
parks and urban nature reserves and cemeteries and churchyards are also quite good as well. I guess it depends on the management though for a park that's kind of mowed to an inch of its life and it's like a bit of a desert that wouldn't be so good but a more wilder park like Hampstead Heath for example might be better. Yeah I think the way the park is managed is going to have a big effect. It was really interesting some of the road verges we were sampling (laughs) um, happened to have the mowers there at the same time so when we sampled them the first time there were lots of flowers and then literally two minutes after we sampled along came the mowers and mowed away all the lovely flowers that we'd sampled. So that was just a temporary hangout there for our pollinators. (laughs) So what can we do to help pollinators in urban areas? What can each one of us do? So there's lots of things people can do. So if you have your own garden you can plant plants that are good for pollinators and a lot of seed packets or plants in garden centres have symbols on them now that say about them being good for pollinators. So the Royal Horticultural Society, for example, has a scheme called Plants for Pollinators. Um, So, yeah, you can go to garden centres and find pollinator-friendly plants. Think about planting throughout the year as well. So bees bees and other pollinators like forage through from kind of the spring, especially when the bumblebee queens are emerging, throughout the summer and into the autumn as well. So ivy, for example, is a really good resource for pollinators in the autumn so it's not just a weed leave your <laughs> ivy up mow your grass less as well so you can encourage more plants more flowers to grow or you could kind of stagger the mowing around your garden you could have a patchwork effect <laughs> in your garden potentially um and wild areas in your garden as well but the other thing you can do is speak to your local councils because they're the ones responsible for managing parks and green spaces and road verges and more and more councils are actually relaxing their mowing regimes but there's still more around the country that need to kind of be persuaded and and spread the word among your friends and neighbours as well a messy road verge isn't necessarily bad. Can I ask you what's your favourite urban pollinator? (laughs) So um, the one I love partly because of its name is called the hairy footed flower bee Anthophora plumapes, so it's quite a big bee. You might mistake it for a bumblebee, but it's actually a solitary bee. Um, it's either black or brown, depending on the male or female. And they're around kind of April time is when they're emerging, and you'll commonly find them hovering around gaps in walls. So you'll know if you come across a wall heaving with sort of black and brown fluffy bees. That's probably a hairy-footed flower bee. Hairy-footed flower bee. That's an excellent oh. name. That's very awesome. Thank you very much, Catherine. So, Kate, apart from clearly loving bats a lot. You're also very interested in the health and well-being aspect of biodiversity. So from your own personal experience with nature, wildlife, may I say bats, what's been the most beneficial aspect of nature to you? Uh, I'd like to qualify that as nature in urban areas. I think it's something which we need to understand a lot more about in terms of how do we manage cities for both people and for wildlife and trying to understand what the health and well-being benefits are of urban ecosystems so there was lots of studies coming out about how mental health is improved when you're outside and what actual mechanisms are are yet to be explored but there's quite a lot of inferential evidence about how mental health and resilience is increased for humans being in in nature and in japan it's called forest bathing This is quite recognised across different cultures about the benefits of nature. And you know that we can see more spectra of green than any other (laughs) colour 
Can we? Yeah, we can distinguish more greens than we can anything else. Oh wow, I've never really thought about this. How many? <laughs> How many shades of green? Uh, more than 50, that's for sure. <laughs> and I also really like the concept of forest bathing. That's kind of what forest I do bathing. when I get stressed. I go and sit in a bit of greenery. Ideally, the more shades of green, the better. Well, you know, it, it might not be green, but it might be absence of, I don't know, massive great big trucks throwing themselves at you on Tottenham Court Road. I don't know. But it could be the absence of that very stressful noise, you know. So maybe that there's something in that and that's being explored now. But also, you know, getting people outside generally increases their fitness and, you know, lowers obesity rates, diabetes. So there's there's lots of benefits and I think that's starting to be unpicked. It could be, you know, that these parks could have a massive value for the local council. So don't chop down the trees, plant more. So urban wildlife is so much more than just pigeons. And this is also very true for London. In fact, if I remember this right, around 40% of London is green spaces. So potential habitat for a number of different critters. So our next guest, uh, Dr. Chris Carbone, is another bro from the Institute of Zoology here at ZSL. Although his official title is actually a senior research fellow. Chris, you have started a research project right here on ZSL's doorstep for an elusive nocturnal mammal that may be roaming Regent's Park. What animal are you looking for? So we're interested in hedgehogs and hedgehogs are everybody's favourite animal as it turns out. Yeah, I've had a lot of interest in hedgehogs, even though we haven't really gotten very far with the project, but yeah, they've been really, people, a lot of people really like them. I suppose they look like they've been put together by different spare parts that you get in a 99p shop or something. They kind of look, they do. Don't give me that look, honest. They, have you seen those pictures? They look like the, 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 uh, the quills on the top were kind of stuck on as an add-on. They're uh, around in certain patches of London, but they are very, very patchily distributed across uh, London. So we're trying to find the locations of their kind of hotspots of activity, the concentrations of hedgehogs in parks and green spaces around London. So why hedgehogs? What is it about hedgehogs? Yeah. Um, so the funny thing is that my colleagues and I had been developing camera trapping methods for other exotic animals like tigers and more importantly, tiger prey. So we've been working on these sort of projects around the globe for the last decade or so. And I got roped into the Regent's Park efforts to look at their hedgehogs. And they do a, a roundup in the spring and autumn every year. And I got, got roped into one of these things and they enthused me so much about hedgehogs. I realised that we could use the same camera trapping technique here in London for hedgehogs that we do across you know, the globe. Also, the signs are that hedgehogs have been declining by a third or two thirds over the last couple of decades, so about a third a decade across the UK. And it's thought that in urban environments, they're actually stabilizing, but we actually have a lot of threats to hedgehogs in London. And I think that the remaining populations are going to be under threat at some stage and we should be taking stock of their numbers with an aim of trying to come up with a better strategy to keep these populations going. So where in London are you currently surveying for hedgehogs? We've got sites in uh, Regent's Park that we've just done. We did a big survey in Hampstead Heath, so it's about twice the size of Regent's Park. So in Regent's Park we had about 80 camera trap stations. We've done about 150 in, oh, wow. in Hampstead Heath. So these are big, big surveys. They, they take quite a lot of effort. And then later on we're going to be looking at further south, 
southwest to Richmond Park, which is bigger still, and Bushy and Home Park, which are also very large. So what have you found so far? Apart from lots of images of surely dog walkers and um, yes. people playing frisbee. Yes, we do. So, yeah, I mean, it's easy to kind of go quickly past the dog walkers and the, the frisbee players because most of that happens in the daytime. So our animals of interest come out at night. And so what we do is we scan for the sort of nighttime hours and the early morning hours and leave the rest behind. And then we find lots and lots of images of foxes, because foxes are really the, the second most common species to humans in the record, and then uh, hedgehogs. But we're also interested in the foxes too, because they are a very important urban species. So there are actually hedgehogs in Regent's Park, just outside our offices somewhere. Yeah, about. yeah there are actually hedgehogs in the zoo grounds, just outside our offices. We're finding quite a few there. Oh, excellent. Great, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Wildlife on our doorstep. I yes. love it. That is actually one of the interesting bits about this project, is wildlife on the doorstep. That is a lot of fun. I mean, it is great to go off to exotic places in the world and see animals far and wide. But what's really been nice about this project is it literally is on your doorstep. And, you know, the politics associated with getting access to these animals and to working in, in places like Regent's Park, Bushy Park and Hampstead Heath and places like that, Alexander Palace, another place we worked up in further north in London, has been great. I mean, it's really great working with these parks and they've been very keen on the ideas and very accommodating on the whole, so it's been really nice. So what's the weirdest thing that you have seen on a camera trap? And please keep it clean in case there's younger <laughs> listeners. But I mean, camera traps in public places, there must be some sort of interference maybe from members of the public with the cameras yeah yeah well it's you know it's it's really very sweet actually Mo the vast majority of things you see are people posing in front of the camera because they think it's hilarious <laughs> i even recall you doing it yourself like uh, maybe at on occasion <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about yes, chris of course not of course not but you know the funny thing is people say oh i posed in front of your camera and they expect us to see it but we don't really look much at the daytime photos because there's so many of them. Oh, but such a disappointment to I me. I know, I know. It I is. was waving at you, Chris. Yes. So hedgehogs are pretty much everybody's favourite. My mum loves hedgehogs. How can people get involved in the project? Is that possible? Well, yeah, it's a good question. So we do have lots of work to be done. There's lots of work to be done. We've got um, lots of cameras to put out when we put out cameras. And if People are part of sort of conservation groups that are, or friends of groups that are associated with some of the parks that we're working in. Then we, we find that those groups are really useful to call on to get big groups of people to put the cameras out. We enlisted the help of a lot of people like that from these different groups. Um, individually, it's hard for people to get in touch because I, I don't have that big a communication base. And, and, and the other thing that I guess we're going to do is we're hoping at some point to get a Zooniverse site up that we can use to help us to process the, the imagery and that would be a great way of getting people involved. Um, so here's yeah. one for the future. This is Look one for the future. For universe. Yeah. So the animal watch. tracker. I think we'll call it animal tracker and we'll have hedgehog data in there. People can track hedgehogs and foxes for us. Cool, excellent. I've got lots of fox sightings for you. Okay. <laughs> Surprise! I live yes. in London. I have a lot of fox sightings, generally in bins. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Cool, excellent. Thanks very much, Chris. Well, you're welcome. That's great. So to keep in line with our hectic urban lifestyles, this has been a very quick whistle-stop tour of wildlife and well-being in urban landscapes. 
However, I hope we've learned some things. We've learned, for example, that there are ways in which we can help pollinators to thrive in our urban landscapes, that there's a lot of tech out there to track hedgehogs and bats, and that we're only at the beginning of finding out about the whereabouts of our friendly wildlife neighbours. We also learned that if you happen to find a camera trap during the day, which is actually set up to monitor nocturnal wildlife, chances are none of the researchers will ever get to enjoy your poses. And finally, we also learned that my urban vocabulary is extremely limited. And remember, if you feel you need a time out from urban stress, have a sit in a park. It's good for you. And that's where I will be heading now. Bye.